Hi, I'm George Borarki. Cityscape won't be heard this week, so we can bring you a special presentation as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign focused on efforts to improve accessibility for people with disabilities. The following is a panel discussion that was produced at the public access network BronxNet. Cityscape will return next week at this time. We'll see you then. Hello, my name is George Bodarki. I'm the news director of NPR affiliate station WFUV, located on the Rose Hill campus of Fordham University here in the Bronx. Each quarter, WFUV works to raise awareness of a particular issue through our Strike Accord campaign. Past campaigns have focused on everything from mental illness stereotypes to urban health. We teamed up with BronxNet for our previous campaign on teen suicide prevention and are happy to be working with them again on our latest campaign. This one focusing on efforts to improve accessibility for people with disabilities. This coming July marks the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But just how far have we come in securing equal access and equal opportunity for all? And what more needs to be done? With us this morning to discuss the matter is James Weissman. James is an ADA pioneer and civil rights advocate. He's been involved in the disability rights movement since the beginning. James currently serves as the executive vice president and general counsel of United Spinal Association. James, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Also here is Edith Prentice. Edith is the chair of the Taxis for All campaign. Hello, Edith. Hello. And finally, we welcome Miranda Applebaum. Miranda is Senior Manager of Accessibility and Visitor Services at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. She's also the chair of the steering committee for the Museum Access Consortium. The consortium works to improve access to cultural resources throughout New York City, including museums and botanical gardens. Miranda, welcome. Thank you. When most people think of the word disability, I think they immediately picture someone in a wheelchair. But there are many different types of disabilities. So I want to start off with a very, very basic question, and that is, what is a disability? James? Well, there's legal definitions. And then there's how you approach disability, people's attitude towards disability. And they're different. The legal definition is a functional limitation something that impairs an ability to engage in a major life activity. Um, or, or something that's perceived as that, if we're going to talk about discrimination. Like you might have scarring but, and be hideous, but you can do, there's no impairment. Um, it's treated like a disability under the law. On the other hand, people's perception of disability is different. Um, people who are, have identical diagnoses, some consider themselves to be disabled and some don't. Um, some work and some don't. Some say they can't work with the identical diagnosis uh, as someone who can. And of course, nobody's lying. It's the perceptual problem of disability, too. The perceptual difference, I guess, you'd say about disability. And then there's all kinds of hidden disabilities. Mental impairment and visual impairments and hearing impairments, circulatory problems, respiratory problems. So the, the, we, we, we're talking about everybody's system and uh, uh, mental ability as well. Edith, what would you say are the biggest misconceptions when it comes to people with disabilities? I think that the biggest misconception is that people see with their own eyes. So it's what the perceiver thinks about disability. Um, I'm relatively independent. Uh, I'm in my chair for, for pulmonary issues primarily. But people think that if you're in a wheelchair, you've got spinal cord injury or something. So it blows their minds if you then stand up to take a box off the shelf. So it's really the way in which society 
interacts with us more than anything. It's also you need to look at the continuum of disability. Um, only, what, 17% or something, people with disabilities have been disabled, quote-unquote, since birth. The rest of us come to disability. Spinal cord injury, um, whatever medical conditions. The reality is, is that with our growing aging population, the number of people who have disabilities, but who don't identify themselves as being disabled, who will say, I'm just old. It's part of getting old. And they're cheating themselves, if you think about it, because they are available to having accommodations and services. And it's really important that everyone is, has access to the service they need, be it you know, the bus, the, the taxi, whatever. And it's really important that people understand being disabled is not a stigma. You know, it's, it's just part of being people. But there are attitudinal issues. It's very definite. Well, it's attitudinal and it's structural issues. I mean, if no one clears the bus stop and I can't get on or off the bus, that's not attitudinal. That's the city agency not doing its job. How long have you been in a wheelchair? I've been in a wheelchair since 1992. I was on and off crutches for many years before that. How did you become comfortable in a wheelchair? How did that process work for you? Actually, um, I ended up in the chair. I had a bad injury and ended up flat in my back in the hospital with skin grafts for several months, at which point you become deconditioned. The first thing they do in rehab is put everyone in a wheelchair to move you from point A to point B. It was the most liberating factor of my life. I mean, I used to do my laundry in a sail bag on my back, on crutches, six blocks from my apartment. A wheelchair was so much easier. I could go grocery shopping once a week instead of every day. Because if you're carrying the bag home on crutches, you're getting very small bags. So to me, it was a major issue. But 92 was several generations ago. I mean, in 1992, we had no accessible taxis. We had probably four accessible subway stations. And the buses were still very problematic, although they had been become accessible in the mid-'80s. The issues were the lifts that didn't work, drivers claiming they didn't have keys, etc. So it was a continuous battle to get the services that we knew were out there and that were our right. We're going to talk a lot more about how far we've come since the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act 25 years ago. But Miranda, you are part of a group that works to improve access to cultural resources for people with disabilities, be it museums or botanical gardens, as we mentioned. How do you define accessibility? Uh, we look at accessibility extremely broadly. Um, we look at physical barriers, so lots of museums and cultural institutions need some help around uh, wayfinding and things like that. Uh, we also want to provide support to staff, so we want to make sure that when people with disabilities come or family members come that they have a welcoming environment. So we want to make sure the staff is well trained and we give resources to museums and cultural institutions to work toward that. Um, and there's also, um, as you mentioned, there's so many people with disabilities that are um, that could be perceived or are not visible. So, um, for example, if you have a child with autism, 
autism, um, that child may not have a physical disability, uh, but waiting in line is, is a huge factor. So you don't go to museums because you wait in line for a long time or it's incredibly crowded, um, or maybe the sensory issues are, are a huge problem for your child. So we try to look at disability extremely broadly um, and primarily through um, making places welcoming and making people are prepared. Yeah, do, do you encounter misconceptions that people with disabilities simply don't want to partake in cultural activities like this. Yeah, and it's, and it's certainly a community that um, is very well organized and well networked, especially in New York City. So, you know, if one cultural institution kind of gets it wrong at some point, there, there could be um, a lot of people that don't want to try it later on. So we want to make sure that we're constantly refreshing and, and giving new services and resources. Are cultural institutions legally bound to provide access to people with disabilities? Yes, so uh, you definitely need to follow the ADA um, and local law as well, um, but there's a lot of museums that are doing things far beyond what's legally required. There's so many museums that offer um, programs for people with dementia that are really enhancing their ability to communicate and extending life um, in a lot of ways, so we, we try to look at that broadly as well. Let's get to the ADA. It's been around now for 25 years. James, what are the specific requirements of the ADA? Well, it's an omnibus law. That means it affects lots of areas, so employment, transportation, places of public accommodation, and state and local government, and all the things operated by them. Um, also, uh, telecommunications uh, industry as well. So the, the basic requirements are that barriers, first of all, everything new has to be accessible. Everything. Um, both state and local government and private businesses, if they're doing anything, new, it has to be accessible to begin with, which means not just wheelchair access. It means lighting and signage and <clears throat> things for hearing impaired people. And um, There's uh, Americans with Disabilities Act accessibility guidelines that explain what to do. Um, in employment, you can't discriminate on the basis of disability, meaning you can't say, we don't hire disabled people. But it's the same as saying we don't hire disabled people if you refuse to make a reasonable accommodation for the employee, and reasonableness is based on your ability to uh, provide the accommodation, <clears throat> as well as whether or not it undermines the nature of the program. So if someone wanted to study uh, botany at the college, and you had to do dissections, but they had limited manual dexterity, they could probably still be a botany student because you could accommodate them by having someone do the dissection as teams of students and they would watch it and take notes. And um, if the botany classroom was on a second floor and there was no elevator in that building, they would move the classroom down to the first floor. Um, if that was impossible, there would be a problem. I mean, a legal problem. You would have to make a lab accessible or move it downstairs. You'd have to put in an elevator or ramps or move it downstairs. Um, transportation has to be accessible. All new transportation starts. There aren't many. Uh, in, in, in the Northeast, almost none. Um, but in the South and Southwest, there's been rail starts that are completely accessible and beautiful, and no one notices that they're accessible in the older rail cities. It's an add-on and it's obvious and expensive to do. Um, all buses have to be accessible and for people who can't use the bus or the subway, 
or commuter rail systems, there has to be paratransit services in New York City. We call it Accessoride, but everyone is required to do it. Now, you were involved in that early fight, right, in the late 1970s and early 80s in yes. New York City for an accessible bus service. Yes, we sued in 79 to get uh, uh, new buses to be accessible, and uh, when they renovated rail stations, not we didn't want them to go back. We had no legal ability to say go back and put elevators in. But when you're renovating, do it accessibly. Do use ramps and elevators. And MTA defended and said outrageous things in print in, to the court. Um, we don't throw people off the bus who aren't disabled, and if they want to crawl on, we let them. Things like that. So we couldn't be dis accused of discrimination. With regard to the rail stuff, they said that uh, the building code in New York, the New York State Public Buildings Law, required buildings built or maintained with state and municipal funds to be accessible. Uh, but it described buildings as buildings likely to be used by the handicapped. Handicapped was the term then, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said that buildings likely to be used by the handicapped couldn't be the subway because they're completely inaccessible. So why would they be likely to be used? And of course they were being used. People were dragging themselves up and down the stairs, people with respiratory and problems and knee pain and less uh, acute than wheelchair status. But there was a guy that used to throw his wheelchair down the stairs and there are still people who go do down it. after. Is that right? So, you know, it did, it did, it, which is very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, we, we ended up settling in 84 for key stations, which will be a little over 100 by 2020, and uh, every bus and paratransit, the accessoride system. And that became the model for the ADA. We did the same thing in Philadelphia a few years later. And then the two oldest, largest rail cities had agreed to key stations. So when the ADA came around, that became the provisions of the ADA. But the, the, the crazy part of this is that Koch, who opposed us, the mayor at the time, mm -hmm. said that he could take everyone everywhere in a wheelchair for $9 million a year on Accessoride without making any buses accessible and without making any subway stations accessible. Accessoride is now only available to people who can't use mass transit, and its budget was $600 million last year, and that's with 120,000 lift-equipped bus trips by people in chairs every month, you're still spending $600 million a year on Accessoride, which, to give you some idea of the scale, is the same as running the Metro North Railroad. So this is a huge program and a nightmare for transit. And if they weren't penny-wise and pound-foolish and would have started 30 years ago making the subways and commuter rail systems accessible, they'd have a class of accessible transit users now instead of paratransit-dependent people, but they, they cheated on that, and the most right-thinking liberal Democrats would not agree to do every station with us. I mean, it was just impossible to do that. We didn't have that many champions, and those that we had, you know, they were very worried about sticking their neck out this far on subway access, which now seems not such a big deal. Everyone uses the elevators. Right. Edith, let's talk about getting around town, and town in this case being New York City. What's it like to get around in a wheelchair? Well, right now it's particularly fun because of the snow conditions. And thankfully we're not in Boston. Uh, but, you know, uh, yesterday I was coming up 6th Avenue, 
and I was very surprised. Here I am in the middle of Midtown, and the ped ramps all were covered with ice. I expect that in Washington Heights. I expect that here in this neighborhood. And believe me, it's much worse here and in Washington Heights. But it's very daunting. Um, the, the taxi situation is crazy, particularly with the rear entries. Um, I saw a little lady yesterday. She had to have been her, in her 80s in a small manual chair trying to get into a taxi. And I finally yelled at the driver and said, help her. Push her up the ramp. The ramps are exceedingly steep. This was a woman who was not particularly strong, and she couldn't get into the taxi. Uh, we opposed those taxis for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the likelihood of finding a station that you know has an elevator is fun. I carry my handy little MTA cheat card, which has, as of October 14, the accessible stations. We're waiting for a new one. And that tells you where they are, but it doesn't tell you that they're running. You have to go online or you have to call them, which, you know, you guys just walk out. You walk down a flight of stairs. I've got to make sure the elevator's running and know where I'm going, the connection. I will take two buses from here to get to the number four train. They don't do emails that tell you when an elevator's out? Yeah, they do, but supposed it's... supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. The problem is that I then will have to remember to look at my phone to check it. It's easier just to go online and, you know, put in your station than to sit there and read through all the elevators and escalators that are out. Um, but it's not a particularly easy system, and none of the systems are. I mean, people, you know, swear by DC Metro... Um, they various light rails. Very big problems in Washington with elevator maintenance. Is that right? And every station has an elevator, so it's not as daunting mm -hmm. when there's a problem. But maintenance is the, the issue, so right. huge issue. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, then you have to get to the next station, right? To and hopefully it's the right color station, or that you can do the interlock to get back. The other problem with DC, let's all be honest, it is not a 24-hour system. We can complain about New York City. Our subways are a 24-hour system. Mm -hmm. But in 2010, when the MTA had a huge shortfall, they cut a tremendous amount of bus services. So that if you want to go from downtown Manhattan to Borough Hall, it used to just be a bus ride. Mm -hmm. Borough Hall in Brooklyn? Borough Hall Brooklyn, I'm sorry. Right, it used to be a bus ride right across the bridge. Now it's subway. Okay, so you have to know that you can switch here, you know, the Lexington is only inbound to Manhattan, accessible from Borough. It's, it's a complicated system. And it's, you have to basically have it memorized. Mm -hmm. And you have memorized what you use all the time. And what you don't use all the time, you have to, you don't know, if Bowling Green is out or if the elevator is out at Fulton, I'm going to... J Street to switch to a Q, to go to Barclays, to come back. You know, I mean, one of the, the big issues is that the transportation is a major problem for people educationally, professionally. You know, if you are a person who ends up having to use accessory to go to work every day, and you are late for work three days out of five, who goes... Who's going to want to employ you? I mean, if you're an employer, and if that's the person on your front desk who has to open the door and greet people 
and they're going to be an hour late, you're not going to hire. And they probably, that's not discrimination. Because the issue is being able to do your job. Now, being let me there. stop you there and ask the question to James, if I can. What kinds of protections are in place in the workplace for instances like that? understanding for those kinds of things? Uh, not a lot. You, you, reasonableness is the only thing required. So how unreasonable it is of an employer to expect you to be on time for work or to be able to stay late, um, that's another thing. If you have an advanced reservation ride system, staying late is impossible. Mm-hmm. So is socializing and going out afterward, work with the guys or whatever it is. Those things are off limits with advanced reservation. Um, taxis is the obvious alternative, and we're getting there. But. Right. Taxis, we're getting there. Edith, you are the chair of the Taxis for All campaign. There has been progress when it comes to accessible taxis in New York City. Yes. I mean, in um, 1998, we had zero. Today, we have approximately um, 1,000 green street hail vehicles, but remember, they can pick up in Midtown. Um, and we have... 450, I think, or something, yellow taxis. So the problem is for the green industry, I have in my phone 35 different companies with phone numbers. Now, yesterday, uh, we were in Midtown, and we were trying to get car service to pick up a person who has an orthopedic injury. We're on 52nd Street, and we're trying to find car service. Yeah, I mean, it was like, it's all black car. It's a very different industry. Mm-hmm. It's a very different core structure. Um, so that it's very problematic. Um, could He couldn't go downstairs and hail a cab because he's on crutches and he's got a fresh injury. So it's a very problematic thing. Now, many of us utilize the entire array of transportation. I I occasionally use Accessoride, I use buses, I use taxis, and I use the subway almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. But I'm lucky. I have, within a mile of my apartment, three, actually four accessible subway stations. One only going downtown, but the others are on the A train and up and down. The, the, The fourth one is a... Uh, station we won a fight for, which is on the one train, which, as Jim described earlier, the MTA had done a lot of work on the one in Washington Heights and had no accessible features. So they ended up putting in an elevator on the downtown side of that train. Mm -hmm. But it's problematic because you can only go downtown. If you want want to come back up, you got to get on the train, Go to 242nd, wait at 242nd for the train to go back down. It's not a great system. We sued them for that station. It wasn't part of the original lawsuit. A few years ago, <clears throat> they were going to do this big renovation at, at that station in Inwood. And because they couldn't, the, the law requires you spend an amount equal to 20% of the renovation cost mm-hmm. on providing access. Well, they couldn't do and they can't at most subway stations, provide elevator access for 20% of the rehab cost at the station when they're sprucing up the look of stations. Mm-hmm. So uh, they weren't going to do anything, which has been their policy, because they didn't want to create a one-way station. And we said, look, we're, gonna be, we're locked in then. We, you're never going to get 
any access this way, at least give us incremental access. Now, when they get back to this station, it could be 30 years from now. We could have a device made by Apple then that we think about a place and we're there. Mm. And we don't have to get on the subway. But when I sued them in 1979, people told me that was going to happen and it's stupid to put elevators in the subway. Mm. And now the ridership's higher than ever. So I think people are going to be traveling and we know they're going to be living longer than they've ever lived and working longer than they've ever worked. Mm. We need as much access as we can get. Uh, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to focus on access of a different kind, and that's access on the web. We live in a digital age. What are the biggest challenges for people with disabilities when it comes to issues related to using websites? Sure. Um, there's uh, the, sort of the primary issue um, for people who are blind or have low vision is using screen readers, so to make sure that websites are accessible in that way and things are tagged correctly. Um, we've been talking a lot about wayfinding around the city, so I think that there's a lot of amazing things that can be done um, to make accessible entrances more clear, um, to let people know about programs that are available, things like that. But Internet access um, is, a, is a, a big industry now. There are people that are making websites. Industry is... People are buying everything on the, on the Internet. And industry has realized this. And now people with low vision who are challenged by your website are not your customer. Mm -hmm. And they are hiring like crazy uh, graphics people that are familiar with uh, access provisions for the Internet. It's also the law. Uh, Section 508 of the Americans with Disabilities Act requires electronic access. So it also requires the washing machine in your a laundromat to be accessible to you also. Many of these things are not. Um, and even if they are, they put them on a platform and you can't reach it. You know, operationally, things become inaccessible even when they're designed right. But uh, the Internet, because it's so liberating for people with disabilities, it, it's, it's really a lifeline. You know, it's also very interesting because if something is intended to be used by the disability community, it is usually very expensive. But once it makes the breakthrough into the general population, suddenly the drop, you know, the cost drop goes down. But if you look at your daily life and think about what you use, you will be surprised to see how many things started life as specialty objects for the disability community. Voice synthesizer is a perfect mm -hmm. example. The, the Stephen Hawking version of, of a voice synthesizer from uh, the movie, that was three, four thousand dollars. Now it's in your phone. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's virtually free uh, for those things. Um, translation software, I, I, it was impossible once, now it's... Dragon speak. Everyone who walks around, you know, talking to their phone. Um, started out for very specific populations, and now it's the world. And so that people who are dyslexic, who may have issues, now have it just much easier mm -hmm. because they can talk to their computer. We, we have, do have to upgrade them, though. We have two minutes left uh, in the program. In these two minutes, let's talk about what your hopes are 25 years from now, I mean, here we are looking back on the ADA since uh, it was signed this coming July, 25 years ago. But where should we be moving forward, James? Well, I would like to be here for that, <laughs> 25 years from now. Um, I, I haven't been able to imagine all the things that have happened. 
um, since the, in the 25 years that the ADA passed, we've had the computer. Uh, I mean, obviously there were computers before 25 years ago, but it's so common now that I really do have trouble imagining the future because I realize how little I knew about it 25 years ago. But I think the thing that I want to happen is the stigma of disability to be erased. It's, it's almost as prevalent as it was 25 years ago. Okay. I, I want to see we have laws. And it's, it seems as though every time you read, pick up the paper, you're finding about some new HUD-funded building that's in violation. Um, you, you, know, you go to a, um, a museum, and you can't read the signs because the font is so small. So we have the laws. We have to see them better enforced. That's the problem with the ADA. The ADA has no built-in enforcement. We need enforcement. Let me give Miranda a very quick couple of sure. seconds here. Last words, Miranda, on you. Sure. Um, I, we've come a really long way in cultural institutions and making them more accessible in physically and in programmatic ways. And um, in the future, I'd love to see less specialized programs for people with dementia, for people who are blind, and make them more inclusion programs so it's part of everyone's life. Well, that's all the time we have for this special collaboration between public radio station WFUV and BronxNet, focusing on efforts to improve accessibility for people with disabilities. We want to thank our guests, James Weissman, Edith Prentice, and Miranda Applebaum. Thank you so much for your input today. Now, for more information and for a list of organizations working to improve accessibility for people with disabilities, you can check out WFUV's Strike Accord campaign website. That's WFUV.org slash Strike Accord. I'm George Bolarki. Thanks for being with us. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.